0: Thanks, Cameron, and good morning, church, and happy birthday, church. I guess we could say that, too. Uh, I don't. Maybe Jason has it in the worship set to sing happy birthday to the church afterwards. Who knows? But today's the church's birthday. That's pretty cool, Pentecost Sunday. Well, we are continuing our series in the book of Genesis, and currently we're focusing on the life and family of Jacob. And let me catch this up. Jacob experienced a lot of conflict in his life. So we've seen the conflict that he had with his father, Isaac. We've seen the conflict where um, he had with his uncle, Laban, and conflict that developed between his wives. Today, we've, we've got a conflict with Esau. It's a showdown uh, with Esau. This is a big conflict that's been building for a while. Because the last time Jacob and Esau were together, Jacob deceived their father and took Esau's blessing. Esau comforted himself by planning to murder him. So clearly we've got a conflict brewing here. And what Jacob did was he ran away from home to get away from it. And he lived with his uncle Laban for 20 years and had all kinds of conflict there. But now Jacob's on his way back home to the land of Canaan, where he was from, where his father and family are. And he's bringing with him all of his family, his, all the possessions and children and all the things that he had acquired while he was with Laban. But also, coming back home means dealing with some unfinished business. He's got to deal with Esau. Esau hated him. Esau hated Jacob, wanted him dead. So Jacob needs to confront his past. He's going to have to deal with his problem, his conflict with Esau, and make peace with him. So let's dig in. We're going to start in Genesis 32. Genesis 32. And we'll pick up our story in verse 3. And Jacob sent messengers before him to Esau his brother in the land of Seir, the country of Edom, instructing them Thus shall you say to my lord Esau Thus says your servant Jacob, I have sojourned with Laban and stayed until now. I have oxen, donkeys, flocks, male servants, and female servants. I have sent to tell my lord in order that I might find favor in your sight. And the messengers returned to Jacob, saying, We came to your brother Esau, and he is coming to meet you, and there are 400 men with him. Then Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed. He divided the people who were with him and the flocks and herds and camels into two camps, thinking, if Esau comes to one camp and attacks it, then the camp that is left will escape. And Jacob said, O God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac, O Lord who said to me, return to your country and to your kindred that I may do you good. I am not worthy of the least of all the deeds of steadfast love and all the faithfulness that you have shown to your servant. For with only my staff I crossed this Jordan and now I have become two camps. Please deliver me from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him that he may come and attack me, the mothers with the children. But you said, I will surely do you good and make your offspring as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for multitude. Let's pause. So Jacob sent this envoy to Esau, hoping to find favor with him. So Esau's response then was threatening, right? I'm getting a little ring, uh, Josh. I guess you can hear that. So Jacob was terrified. He was scared to death of what would happen when he runs into Esau. He was traveling with four women, a dozen kids, a bunch of animals. And Esau is coming to meet him with 400 men. So what, Jacob, what did Jacob do? I mean, he prayed, right? He, he talked to God about this. He specifically prayed and called upon God's promise. And that's the same promise that he inherited from Abraham, his grandfather. And the promise is this, verse 9, first, that God would establish Jacob in the homeland. That's That's where he was headed back to, that he would be established in the homeland. Second, that God would do good to him and bless him. That was part of the promise, right? Abraham covenant. Verse 12, the third thing is that God would multiply Jacob's household with many descendants. Jacob believed that promise. He prayed that promise back to God. So Jacob's faith gave him confidence to move towards this conflict and trust God to bring about a peaceful resolution. Because no matter how mad Esau was and no matter how strong he'd become, God's promise still stands. God was going to bring Jacob back home. God was going to bless Jacob. God was going to do good to Jacob. God was going to multiply his descendants and his household in the homeland, So no matter what was going on with Esau, Jacob could cling to the promise that God had given him. And so as Jacob moved toward conflict, he could be confident that God would protect him and that God would help him to make peace. There are two kinds of people in the world. There are those who enjoy conflict, and then there are normal people. (laughs) I was talking to a pastor friend once, this quiet, gentle guy, just a, a sweet, warm man. Um, he told me that he's an eight on the Enneagram. So if you know the eights, they're like hard charging, not afraid of conflict, you know. And I was surprised by that. I told him, I, I said, That's a, I, I wouldn't have thought of, that, thought of you that way at all. He said, why? And I said, well, because you're so peaceable. I figured you'd be a nine, you know, the, peace, the peaceable person. And he, actually, and he said, actually, I love conflict. And then I looked at him and I said, What's wrong with you? (laughs) What kind of person loves conflict? He said, I see conflict as a good thing. That's how people grow. And the thing is, is that he's right. We grow through conflict. And the fact is, most of us hate it. Most of us hate conflict. We would do anything to avoid conflict. Why is that? Why is conflict so hard for us? I think the the answer is this. Many Christians avoid conflict because they're peace lovers and not peacemakers. Peace is an idol for them. Matthew 5, 9. Listen, Listen to what the scripture says and listen carefully. Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. James 3, 18 says, a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. So we're not called to love peace as an end, but we're called to make peace. That's different, right? The common mistake that we make is we think that peace is the absence of conflict. But that's not always true, is it? We all know situations where there's a conflict brewing. It's just under the surface. You feel it, it's tense. You know there's disagreement. You know there's stuff that needs to come out. But we bury it because we think that's what peacemaking is. We bury the issue. We avoid the issue. We ignore the issue because we think, well, if we bring it out in the open and have a conflict, well, then that's disunity. And that doesn't feel very spiritual. We don't want disunity. So we we ignore the conflict. But still, it comes up passive-aggressively in those situations. You could say, like, well, some people don't appreciate all I do around here. Not naming names, but... You know, not everybody really sees my value. Let me we say, well, say things passive-aggressively. The conflict is there. It's happening. It's just not out in the open. It's buried. Peacemaking brings that conflict out into the open so it can be dealt with. Famous example of this is when Hitler was marching through Europe. There were two figures that emerged in England. One was Neville Chamberlain, and he was a peace lover. He had an appeasement strategy. He wanted, to, he wanted peace, and so he avoided conflict with Hitler, and he ended up getting bullied and let Hitler continue to take over other nations. The other figure was Winston Churchill. Winston Churchill was a peacemaker. He had an engagement strategy, and he saw the necessity of conflict in order to make peace. He won the war, and peace was the result, but it was ugly. Often, the only way to make peace is through conflict. Peace is not the absence of conflict. Peace is the fruit of it. Peace is what results from a good, healthy conflict. Peace is where you end up after openly and graciously working through your differences and coming to an understanding. Peace doesn't just happen on its own. Much of the time in conflicts of a certain magnitude, they don't just go away. It's there. So peace doesn't just happen on on its own. You can't sweep your problems under the rug and expect for there to be true peace. So peace is made when you bring them out in a loving and gracious manner and you work through your differences in the power of the Spirit, prayerfully. So peace, loving, is idolatry. The pain just gets delayed. You're kicking the can down the road. The conflict is there. You're just not dealing with it. Peacemaking is godly, and you make peace through conflict. Personally, I hate conflict. I don't enjoy it at all. I'm, I'm not one of those guys that just gets a rise out of conflict. It's really stressful. My heart races. I get anxious. I'm, I just, it, it, it keeps me up at night. I hate conflict. And because of some experiences of the past, a lot of conflicts are just downright scary. I mean, I may not have had like an Esau situation where I've got, you know, 400 men, you know, kind of breathing down my neck, but you know the fear I'm talking about. Conflict can feel scary. You've got these fight or flight reflexes that uh, are kind of hardwired into our brain. And, you know, you either want to run away or you want to engage and get really aggressive. Conflicts can do that. A lot of times what, what, I, what I'd learned to do is to avoid conflict and feel spiritual and noble about it. So I would be like, look at me, God. I turn the other cheek. Isn't that what you wanted me to do? Look at me, God, I'm, I'm, I'm making peace here. I'm, I'm, not, I'm, not devi- I'm not being divisive. I'm not disunified with other Christians. When really what was happening is I was baptizing my fear of man and my pain and avoidance and dressing it up as virtue conflicts don't feel spiritual I don't know of anybody who in the middle of a conflict they feel like they're doing the lord's work because there's anger tension hurt pain frustration all of those things and none of those things are feelings that we associate with joy and walking in the lord walking with the lord and all those things so A lot of times when it happens in churches, we'll we'll, we'll call it division. It feels like disunity. And so what we do is is we, we sidestep problems. We don't talk about issues. So we avoid conflict and congratulate ourselves for not being divisive. And what that does is that creates a toxic environment. Because the tension is there. The pain and frustration is there. The hurt is there. But you're not dealing with it. So yes, Jesus, what he said, we believe that. Blessed are the peacemakers, but not the peace lovers. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace, not by those who love peace, who are just committed to peace at all costs. Before I moved to Cincinnati, I did a church planting assessment. And one one piece of feedback that was very powerful that I received was, They basically said, your fear of conflict, Michael, will cripple your ministry. That'll be your Achilles heel. I had several Achilles heels, they said, but that was a big one. So your fear of conflict is going to cripple your ministry. Because I tend to be a people pleaser. I care too much what people think of me. I I hate feeling like somebody's mad at me. And whenever I've had conflict with friends in the church, it feels like my friends hate me now. It's going to ruin the friendship, and they're going to, they're going to leave. And sadly, I mean, that, that's happened more times than I can count, where not just people leave, but friends leave. I've lost a lot of friends, and I've, I've, come, to, I've come to terms with it. You could say I've made peace with it. <laughs> but I've come to terms with the fact that losing friends is part of the calling, because a faithful pastor will engage in and even cause, create a degree of conflict. Not in a divisive way, obviously, but there, there is a degree of conflict that is caused by faithful pastors. I mean, isn't that what it means to correct and teach and rebuke? It means you're, somebody thinks one way and you're challenging that thought. You're challenging or correcting a behavior. But that's what we do in the body of Christ. Iron sharpening iron, that's the language of conflict, right? I mean, that's, that's the language of hard things pushing against one another and, and shaving off material that, that is refining and purifying. That's, that's the language of conflict. Jesus created conflict. You brood of vipers. <laughs> so whenever that happens, that can complicate friendships. A lot of times conflict with the pastor feels to that person like conflict with the church. and it can even feel like conflict with God. So for me personally, I take comfort in knowing that in a fallen world, as painful as it is, conflict is normal, conflict is inevitable, and if done in a healthy way, conflict can be really good. So I took my church planning assessment to heart, and I decided to to embrace that in my ministry, to, when necessary, move toward conflict, even though it's stressful and painful and uh. I've aged, (laughs) ages me many years. So, my pastor friend was right. Conflict can be good. We grow, we need friction to grow. Conflict helps us to grow. Without friction, we don't grow. Jacob needed to move towards conflict with his brother in order to make peace, even though he was scared to do so. How did it work out? Let's jump to chapter 33. Verse 1. And Jacob lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, Esau was coming, and four hundred men with him. So he divided the children among Leah and Rachel and the two female servants, and he put the servants with their children in front, then Leah with her children, and Rachel and Joseph last of all. And he went on before them, bowing himself to the ground seven times until he came near to his brother. So we skipped a few verses, but let me fill you in on what happened. In the verses that we skipped, Jacob sent elaborate gifts, hundreds and hundreds of animals and gifts that he sent ahead of him through his messengers to Esau, trying to appease him. And so this massive herd of animals included like uh, goats and rams and ewes, camels, cows, bulls, donkeys, Hundreds of animals, literally. So picture this scene. By the time Esau arrives with his 400 men and approaches Jacob's caravan, Jacob also approaches. He's out in front of his family, and he's bowing himself down before Esau, prostrating himself seven times on the way to meet Esau. And he's followed by this lengthy caravan of all the rest of his belongings and his, and his people, his family. Jacob was vulnerable. And if Esau wanted to, if he just said the word, his 400 men could have massacred all the people, wiped them out. Esau could have had his revenge. If you recall from the earlier chapter, he comforted himself, planning to kill Jacob. So now he could kill Jacob and wipe out Jacob's line. So Jacob was terrified. I've heard it said that conflict delayed This conflict multiplied. It's been 20 years. Esau's had plenty of time to nurture and let that anger fester. It's now or never for Jacob. Jacob must confront the problem. Verse 4. But Esau ran to meet him and embraced him and fell on his neck and kissed him. And they wept. What a relief. After all this time, it's been 20 years, after all that buildup, all that fear, the conflict wasn't nearly as bad as Jacob had feared. It turns out that Esau's heart was softened toward Jacob. And quite likely, it was softened due to Jacob's efforts to demonstrate goodwill towards him. He sent gifts, he prostrated himself, he bowed down. He indicated in every way possible that he wanted Esau's favor, that he wanted it to work out, that he did not mean him harm or threaten him in any way. So in this verse, there's no evidence of animosity or hatred from Esau. He was gracious and warm towards him. He he seemed genuinely happy. I mean, they hugged and they embraced and cried and kissed. It's a very touching scene. But even still, there's the matter at hand that still needs to be dealt with. They can't just take the emotional feels of the moment and assume that all is well. They do have to address the fact that the last time they were together, Jacob deceived their dad and took Esau's blessing. So, verse four, or rather, verse five. When Esau lifted up his eyes and saw the women and children, he said, Who are these with you? Jacob said, The children whom God has graciously given to your servant. Then the servants drew near, they and their children, and bowed down. Likewise, Leah likewise and her children drew near and bowed down. And last, Joseph and Rachel drew near, and they bowed down. Esau said, What do you mean by all this company that I met? Jacob answered, to find favor in the sight of my Lord. So here's what's going on. Esau says, what's the deal with all these people and animals that, that you've sent? What's going on? Like, why did you send this elaborate gift in advance? And what Jacob says is subtle. He says, to find favor in your sight. Now, that's, it's a subtle acknowledgement of his wrong. He would not need to seek Esau's favor in this way if there was not a known grievance between them. So this is Jacob's way of asking forgiveness. He's owning up to what he did. He's not being defensive. He's not saying, "Well, you were wrong. Well, you should have done this or that." He's not doing that. He's he's taking it on the chin like a man and saying, "I did wrong." And he's he's making he's trying to make it right by offering a restitution for what he had taken. Verse 9, but Esau said, I have enough, my brother. Keep what you have for yourself. So Jacob wouldn't have known this, but as it turns out, God had blessed Esau also in the 20 years. Esau had, gone to, had lived in another place, and he had been abundantly uh, blessed and provided for. So God had not forgotten him either. So Esau did not want nor need Jacob's gift. Verse 10, Jacob said, no, please, if I have found favor in your sight, then accept my present, note that word, accept my present from your hand. For I have seen your face, which is like seeing the face of God, and you have accepted me. Please accept my blessing, note that word, please accept my blessing that is brought to you because God has dealt graciously with me and because I have enough. Thus he urged him, and he took it. Up until this point, the gift that Jacob sent to Esau, he called it a present. But in verse 11, that word changes, and that's what I want you to notice. It was called a present before. In verse 11, he says, please accept my blessing. Do you remember that word from before? That's exactly the word for what Jacob took from Esau, when he deceived his father and then Esau cried oh father do you have a blessing for me please bless me also do you remember that Jacob took the blessing from Esau and now Jacob is returning he called it a present before but verse 11 he changes the word to blessing indicating he is making restitution please accept my blessing he's making it right Verse 11 says, he's doing this because God has dealt graciously with me, meaning on the basis of God's grace, he can repent and seek Esau's forgiveness. And the the reconciliation between them is enabled by God's grace that has been given to Jacob. Now, there's a lot that we can learn from this story about conflict and making peace and reconciliation, but we're going to we're not gonna go any further in the story this morning. What I wanna do is talk about four application points about conflict from this story. The first one, and well, as we do this, I want you to think of a conflict. Not just a spat with, with a friend or spouse or something, but th- think of a conflict that is, to you it's big. Maybe something that's unresolved. And apply these things to that conflict. As as we go through this, see what the Lord would have you do um, toward that conflict in these points. First one, rely on God's power through prayer. Jacob approached the conflict with much prayer. And and a part of the text that we skipped is like he actually wrestled with God. Now we'll hear about that next week. We skipped the part where he wrestled with God. So next week we'll get to that. But all of this is part of the the, the theme of prayer, he's, he's got this conflict with Esau looming. But before he deals with the conflict with Esau, he's wrestling with God and he's dealing with his own conflict with God. He's praying, he's claiming God's promises. And whenever we have a conflict, we need to do the same thing. We need to take it to the Lord in prayer and trust God's power to work through the conflict for our good and the good of the other person. So we need to start by confessing our own sin. We need to ask God to show us where we're at fault. If you're blind to your faults, it's it's going to be more difficult for you to have healthy conflict if you're not acknowledging them. But if you can recognize your fault before the conflict begins, then you're not relying on the other person to point it out for you. Because it's probably what the conflict is about. It's like you have your faults, they have their faults, And the conflict is about pointing out each other's faults to each other. But if you can see them in advance and deal with them, take them before the Lord, then you're able to engage in the conflict from a healthy place with repentance and humility. So when you pray, you can ask God to give you a peaceful resolution. That's what Jacob prayed in verse 11 in chapter 32. Deliver me from Esau. He knew he needed God's help. So a healthy conflict can be good and clarifying and fruitful. An unhealthy conflict can do a lot of damage. Healthy conflict is approached prayerfully in the power of the Holy Spirit. Unhealthy conflict is done in the flesh. Flashes of anger. Human effort. So pray for God to give you strength to approach the conflict in a healthy way with grace and humility. And so to do this, it's good to prayerfully reflect on your experience of conflict in the past. So how was conflict handled in your home when you were growing up? Did you grow up observing healthy conflict in your home, particularly between your parents? So did you grow up watching shouting matches, screaming and yelling, cruelty, verbal abuse, accusations? Did you grow up around Avoiding conflict. Sweep it under the rug, pretend it's not there, ignore the problem, pretend everything is fine, and then the passive-aggressive sniping at each other. Or did you grow up around healthy conflict, where problems are brought out into the open, they're dealt with calmly and openly, respectfully, directly? The thing is, whatever you observed as a child regarding conflict is going to be the most natural way for you to engage in conflict. To you, that's just what, what conflict is. That just will seem normal in the most natural way. That's just like, well, that's how you do it. That's what I've always seen. Whatever conflict was like in your home defines normal for you until you learn a better way. A lot of times in conflict, we were emotional and angry and things were tense and amped up and we revert back to more baser instincts. Instincts. And so we just act out of what just seems natural. It's a reflex. We're not thinking, we're not not restraining ourselves. So, if you're in whoever, whatever conflict was like for you, that's the way you do it. And it's the same is true for the person that you're in a conflict with. That person may have never really engaged or seen healthy conflict. So, they're just acting out a script that they learned as a kid. So what we need to do is prayerfully rely on the Holy Spirit to not give in to the flesh, to not just act in whatever way seems natural in the moment, to let anger carry us away. and Your emotions in a conflict will flare. Tempers will rise. You can easily lose self-control and say things that you regret, and those are the things that create more conflict, that deepen the problem. But we have prayer, we have the Holy Spirit, we have the power of the Holy Spirit, we have the promises of God. So ask God to help you engage in the conflict in a way that honors Jesus. That's the first one. The second one, express love and goodwill to the other person. Jacob was over the top. In expressing grace and humility. He had the, the gifts that he sent. He bowed down seven times. Everything that he did was it communicated that he does not mean any harm, that he is not a threat to Esau. Even though he was scared to death, I mean, imagine the emotions he would have felt in that moment. He's thinking, this could be the end of me, literally. Esau is coming with an army And so he prostrated himself and did everything he could to demonstrate that Esau, I am not a threat. I'm not treating you like an enemy. He said, I I fear him. He may come and attack me and the mothers and the children. He knew that was a possibility. And whenever he spoke to them, he said things like, your servant, referring to himself. He called Esau, my Lord, very humble and deferential. So he let his guard down. And what's interesting, Esau did the same. Esau responded to that. Do you know what mirroring is? Mirroring is like a an idea according to Wikipedia. Um, people subconsciously imitate each other in conversations. You ever noticed this? Like if, you're, if you're if you're like this in a conversation, the other person will probably do the same thing. It's just it, it's a it's a it's a thing that we do without even thinking about it. We 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 react to one another. We mirror each other. So we mirror each other's gestures, attitudes, and speech patterns, and it's a, it's a subconscious way for us to build rapport with somebody else. And this is true especially with close friends or family. So if you treat another person like they're your enemy, they're likely to respond to you like an enemy. If you treat the other person like they're your friend, then they're more likely to respond to you like they're your friend. You 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 can... You can act in such a way that invites a certain response that is healthy. And we see this in Proverbs 15.1. One example among many I could quote, but 15.1 will suffice. A soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. Do you see that? It's, it's, modern psychology would call it mirroring, but the scripture is more direct. If you speak to somebody in a harsh way, it's going to tick them off. If you speak to somebody in a kind or gentle way, then it's going to turn away their wrath. That's practical wisdom for conflict. Harsh words escalate conflict, gentle words de-escalate conflict. So if you get emotional and raise your voice and make accusations, you're daring the other person to respond in the same manner. But if you're calm, if you speak in a disarming way, with a spirit of encouragement, yet speaking firmly and directly, there's a good chance they will mirror that too. So what Jacob did was he expressed love and goodwill. We can do the same thing. We can speak and communicate in such a way that says, I'm not your enemy. We're not enemies here. I care about you. You can say those words. We're in this together. We're going to work through this. We've got differences, but we're going to figure this out. You, you can say that to a person, and that, that can be disarming. It can help the other person to not feel as though you're like Esau with 400 men coming to hack him to pieces. Here's a third one. Number three. Listen carefully, speak directly, watch your temper. Kind of Kind of a three for one there. <laughs> Listen carefully, speak directly, watch your temper. So if you're the kind of person that... Your temper flares up in a conflict. Here's a verse for you. Ready? James 1:19. Know this, my beloved brothers. Let every person be, here we go, quick to hear, slow to speak or tweet or write, whatever the case may be. Slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. hate that verse <laughs> <laughs> quick to listen slow to speak don't be impulsive with your words so when you pray when you if you have the opportunity to pray and prayerfully prepare for a conflict specifically ask the lord to give you the the power of listening and the self-control to not speak too quickly don't speak emotionally impulsively and you know what they say, God gave you two ears and one mouth for a reason, so you would listen twice as much as you speak. So whenever you listen, do like, practice active listening. Work hard to listen carefully and charitably. This is a big one. This is a big one. When, whenever you're reflecting back to a person what they've said or what you think about them make sure that you're not taking the worst possible version of their words. Listen charitably. That means that don't just assume the worst about them and their intent. Because a lot of times in conflict, we get tongue-tied, we speak clumsily, and if you're arguing with their miscommunication rather than their heart or their intent, then you're making it worse. Like, engaging conflict based on what they actually mean, and that means give them the benefit of the doubt. Like, listen charitably to what they say. Don't just assume that they're the worst version of what they're saying. Don't interrupt them. I find it helpful to take notes. So whenever whenever I'm in a conflict with somebody, I get a notebook out, and I have I I write things down. I try to. I try to listen. I'm like, tell me more about that. Tell me something. And that way, rather than giving my rebuttal live in the moment, I can. I can hear all that they say. I'm like, make your case. I want to hear all of it. Get it all out. And when they're done, is there more? Is there more? Have you said everything you need to say? Is there anything you've forgotten about? Take a moment to think about it. Like, I want to hear all of it. And I'm, I'm taking notes. And then, okay, let's. Let me hear. Let me reflect back to you some of what I've heard, and so I'll ask clarifying questions. I'm I'm hearing you say that I'm the worst person you've ever met. Is that accurate? I'm like no, no, that's not what I meant. Okay, okay. Well, tell me again. <laughs> Maybe I didn't get it right. But reflect back to them and ask them, like, is that it? So that way, by the time that by the time they're done speaking, they felt like they've they've been heard and not pounced upon. When you speak, identify and address specific behaviors, but try to avoid attacking them personally. We don't need to, we're not out to destroy each other, or it's not about winning. Winning is when peace is made, and, we're, and when, when Jesus and his truth is present in the conversation, that's winning. It's not when you've won, and you've defeated your opponent. It's about Christ being glorified, and and for both of you seeing your sin, repenting, confessing, and God is honored in the peace that is made in that context. It's not about beating them. So make sure you have the right win in your mind so when you speak, you don't wanna attack them personally. So a personal attack sounds like this. You're always so mean. Why are you so selfish all the time? You never consider other people. Why are you so proud? I mean, all of those things, those are personal attacks. So when you speak with a personal attack, it, it can make a conflict seem hopeless because now you're not just arguing with a thing that happened. You're, you're saying like, hey, well, I, I'm being rejected personally. So it ratchets up the emotion and it puts the other person under a pile of shame. And with personal attacks, we're often exaggerating the truth. We say words like always and never. Notice that? Well, you always do that to me. Really? Always? There's no exceptions? Always? But it's, we're speaking from emotion because we want to be heard. And, we, and so we're exaggerating. We're, we're building it out bigger because we want the emotion that we're feeling about what the other person did to be heard. And so we speak with personal attacks, but that usually makes things worse. So it's best to focus on behavior. Don't say, why are you so heartless and cruel? You could say, what you said last week was cruel. I was hurt by that. Instead of saying, you're such an idiot. You should have known that would backfire. You could say, that wasn't wise. Let me tell you why I think that's the case. You're you're dealing with the thing and not attacking the person. All right, number four. This is the last one. Number four, own what's yours to own and make it right. And forgive what's theirs, whether they own it or not. This is the hardest one. Own what's yours to own and make it right. And forgive what's theirs, whether they own it or not. The thing is, in conflict, most people won't own as much as you think they should. And you probably won't own as much as they think you should either, so it goes both ways. That's why it's a conflict. You disagree. Do you know this? Every year around the world, 1.3 million checked bags at the airlines go unclaimed. 1.3 million checked bags go unclaimed every year. So you can just imagine at the terminal in the baggage claim, you've got these suitcases that circle the carousel around and around and around and nobody's claiming them. Nobody's saying, I own that and I'm taking it. And in all of our conflicts, there's going to be some personal and emotional baggage that goes unclaimed. Problems from our past or times we've been burned, unconfessed sin, even subconscious things we're not aware of. Those things are in the unclaimed baggage. And the other person has them too. It's different things, different experiences, and to a different degree, a different amount. And all of that unclaimed baggage, it clouds our judgment. It makes it harder for us to be able to, to deal with the truth. Because the truth can be hard to see. There's so much that clouds our vision So at the end of almost every conflict, there's a lot of unclaimed baggage circling the carousel. The apology you wanted, the sin they committed against you, the pain you inflicted on them and they want you to acknowledge, all of that baggage circling the carousel, healthy conflict can help you resolve some of it, but not likely all of it. There's going to be a good degree of stuff that just doesn't get acknowledged. And we have to live with that. If if our metric of a resolved conflict is everything is dealt with and everything is owned, then we're going to be really disappointed in life. And the difference between what is and what should be is the grace of God. Just as Jacob approached Esau saying, God has dealt graciously with me, we can say the same thing about us. Every one of us can say, God has dealt graciously with me. God has extended his favor to me. God did not punish me for everything that I could have been punished for. And on that basis, I can be gracious with others. Through the gospel, God gives us the spiritual and emotional and relational resources to forgive all of it. Two, two scriptures. Jesus taught us to pray this way. Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Here's another one. Ephesians 4.32. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. So I mean that. We have to forgive all of it. Unforgiveness is not an option. We've got to forgive every last bit of it. The only way we will ever be able to forgive like that is by first recognizing the grace we've received. The forgiveness we've received in the gospel. God forgives us completely. God does not merely forgive us of the sins that we acknowledge or cop to. God forgives us of all of our sins. There's this thing in the Old Testament about unintentional sins. Look it up about a dozen times in the Old Testament where there are practices that God's people are to enact ritualistically as a way to acknowledge their unintentional sins or sins they may not even be aware of. So what God has promised us in the gospel is that we're forgiven of all of our sins, even the ones we don't confess or acknowledge. So yes, Jesus died for the sins that you know about, And for those, we confess to him and we're assured of his abundant grace and forgiveness. But Jesus also died for sins we don't know about. So we can confess to him our ignorance. We say, God, I have offended you in ways that I don't even know. And if that's true of God, that's surely true of of one another. We, We hurt each other in ways we don't know, we don't acknowledge, we don't see it. We can ask for God to show it to us But we can know that in Christ, we are completely forgiven for things known and unknown, acknowledged and unacknowledged, trusting that Jesus claims our unclaimed baggage. So for this reason, we have to completely forgive. We have to forgive the other person, whether or not they admit they're wrong. Now, hear me on this. That doesn't mean that the relationship is reconciled. That's a different topic for a different sermon. I had to cut it out of my notes. <laughs> but I'm not saying that your relationship is reconciled and all's good. So if there's some abuse in your past, I'm not saying that you have to go back to that person. I'm not saying that. But I'm saying that in your heart, you cannot harbor unforgiveness. It will kill you spiritually. You have to forgive, even if the relationship itself goes unreconciled. So the, the trust may not be restored. Forgiveness doesn't require reconciliation. But unforgiveness is never an option because when we've realized how much we've been forgiven, then we can forgive more freely. The forgiveness we've received from God, that's the foundation of the forgiveness we extend to others. And the hope of the gospel is that the ultimate conflict between us and God is resolved in Christ and the relationship is reconciled there. God forgives us and reconciles us. So through Christ, there's no unclaimed baggage. Jesus claims all of it, freeing us from the burden of our sins and having our conflict with God resolved or filled with the Spirit. We're united into a family. One body, one Lord, one Christ, one baptism, one God and Lord of all. So we have the gospel power to forgive and to reconcile with each other too. Well, let's pray. Our Lord... We thank you that you have forgiven all of our sin and that we were your enemy but you didn't treat us like an enemy. You sought us, you bought us, you forgave us, cleansed us, washed us, purified us, reconciled yourself to us, filled us with your spirit. The down payment, the deposit guaranteeing eternity of reconciled relationship with you. All bought and paid for because you died for sins you didn't commit. You died for your enemies. And as our Lord was hanging on the cross, he cried out, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. That's the heart of our Lord. That's your heart. God, give us the power to believe that for ourselves and to live that in whatever conflict is represented in this room. What I'm sure there are conflicts on our minds that that we're going through that we have to surrender to you and so, Lord, I pray that you will give wisdom and all the nuance and things that we didn't talk about, all the variables. I pray, Lord, that you will, you will grant your wisdom in community with one another through prayer. Give everyone that needs to engage in a conflict. pray that you will give them the grace to do so in a healthy way. Lord, thank you so much for the forgiveness and the grace and peace that we can have. And help us to extend that to others. Give us humility. Give us repentance, Lord. Grow us in maturity. And now as we come to the table, we eat and drink and celebrate the body and blood of Jesus who made it possible. We pray this in the name name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.